Talk Recorded live. From St. Louis, Missouri, it's Keys to Lost, a musician's point of view of the ABC television series Lost. Hosted by keyboardists Matt Murdock and Leslie Santee. And now, here's Matt and Leslie. Okay, and welcome to Keys to Lost podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to the television series Lost. We're in the middle of a hiatus between seasons five and six, and we're attempting to uh, build our own library since we're a relatively new podcast by going back and rewatching season one during this hiatus. I'd like to mention that there are a lot of rewatches going on uh, this hiatus uh, of all of the seasons, principally one, and one that I've gotten a chance to participate in has been the Lostaholics Rewatch, which is hosted by Lostaholics Nancy Drew, who also is a member of the Black Rock Podcast, which features Kurt Yanko and Dan. And they all do a great job. I love that podcast. You can find them on the Lost Podcasting Network as well as their own blogs. And the Lost Podcasting Network you can find at lostcasts.blogspot.com. And we are part of the Lost Podcasting Network too, I'm pleased to say. Uh, which has helped us out a great deal. Other podcasts that you might find on on the Lost Podcasting Network would be uh, the Lostaholics Rewatch, Lost Revisited Now, Donald is Lost, Jacob's Cabin. Uh, Anna gave us a good shout on her latest podcast, which was really nice. Uh, the uh, Lostaholics Rewatch that we did this last Sunday also featured Matt from the Smoke Hatch uh, podcast, which is a great podcast as well. So you want to check all of those out. Uh, as well over the hiatus. And we actually have Nancy Drew in the chat with us, so we're very pleased to have her. Feel free to make any comments or additions in the chat if you wish, and we'll shout them out for you. So this episode that we're going to review is the third episode of the first season, Tabula Rasa, which was first aired on October 6th of 2004. It was written by Damon Lindelof, directed by Jack Bender, uh, had guest stars of Frederick Lane as the Marshal and Nick Tate as Ray Mullen. But before we get into actually reviewing the episode, we always like to give ourselves a shameless plug too. My co-host Leslie Santi is playing this week. She's back from her Jamaican tour and she's uh, playing in town this week. So why don't you let us know where you're playing? All right, thanks, Matt. Um, this weekend, you can catch me Friday night, the 26th, at Squire's Restaurant and Bar in Lafayette Square, which is in St. Louis. And uh, that's uh, three sets, myself and um, looks like a drummer uh, is going to be playing with me. It's a duo show from 8 to 11, free in all ages, uh, this Friday. And, uh, and actually, there's a show Saturday night as well, too. I don't think I've actually gotten it up on my schedule um, but it is, if you happen to be in Collinsville, Illinois, I'll be playing at Hotel Collinsville um, from 9 to 12 p.m. on Saturday night, the 27th. So two chances in the local area to see a show for me. Uh, Matt, how about you? Oh, as usual, I have my standbys on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I play at the Broadway Oyster Bar every Monday from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m., that's with the Sular Blues Band, and it's located at 736 South Broadway, just a couple blocks south of Bush Stadium. Then on Tuesday and Wednesday, you can catch me at the Beal on Broadway with Eric McSpadden. That's uh, at 701 South Broadway, which is almost across the street, just a little bit closer to the stadium. Uh, those times vary. Uh, when there's baseball, we play from 530 to 730. When there's not baseball, we play from 8 to 10. 
this week also on Friday night, you can catch me with the Sioux Blues Band at the Blues on the Mississippi Concert Series. Uh, that starts at 8 p.m. at Jefferson Barracks Park. And on Saturday, we are playing at the Baldwin Days Concert Series. Uh, that's somewhere in Baldwin, which I don't have the location for yet, but that's a 7 p.m. start. Oh, I thought I would make uh, uh, just a note here that I picked up off of uh, uh, Wikipedia about tabula, tabula rasa, the term itself, which I wasn't aware of what it meant until actually I saw this episode for the first time, which was a while back. But um, uh, tabula rasa is Latin for blank state. Um, it refers to the epistemological thesis that individuals are born without built-in mental content, and that their knowledge comes from experience and perception. The proponents of the tab tabula rasa thesis favor the nurture side of nature versus nurture debate, and when it comes to the aspects of one's personality, social and emotional behaviors, and intelligence. And again, that was from Wikipedia. And uh, it really does uh, kind of fit the, the overall theme of this show, if you think about it. So let's go ahead and get into initial reaction. I'm sure that doesn't mean that much to you, because back when you were called in the shots, you pretty much just reacted. Initial reactions. And Leslie, uh, what was your first thoughts of this when you first saw it? You know, when I first saw it, um, I mean, I, I, I remember learning, feeling like I was learning a lot about Kate and uh, being interested in, in her, her angle and finding out what her story was about. Um, I mean, it was a really Kate-centric episode, so I do remember that. Otherwise, um, you know, I I thought there was some humor in it. Um, there were some moments where they started kind of laying out some um, some minor conflicts that would play over and over, like you know, like the the differences between Jack and Sawyer, for example. Um, but otherwise, um, I, I didn't think this one was super eventful. Um, Still, I still really liked it, but um, I remember thinking, what's next <laughs> after this one? Yeah, I, uh, initially, when I first saw this episode for the first time, I, I found it interesting. Um, there were a couple of things that I remember thinking about it being uh, uh, that Walt uh, and the rain kind of intrigued me, the fact that uh, as soon as Michael said, well, I'm going to find your dog as soon as it stops raining, then Walt... Uh, uh, or uh, then the rain suddenly stopped. Um, and, of course, whatever the animal was that was chasing Michael, we had seen polar bears. We knew something was in the, the area of the cockpit that had chased Jack and Kate, and I was wondering if it was any of that. Of course, I think I can answer that a little bit later. Uh, there were small questions, but there was no real development of the mythology in this episode. It was more a look into Kate's life and how she got to where she was uh, to be on that plane and, and to uh, arrive on the island. So let's go ahead and go into the scene-by-scene scene breakdown. Well, let me break it down for you, Mikey. Scene-by-scene scene breakdown. Okay, Leslie, you or me first? Um, I'll start. Um, in this episode, um, this, this first scene opens up on the beach. Um, everyone seems to be uh, really busy. Uh, Claire's looking through some of the personal belongings of, um, we're not quite sure, but she's looking through personal belongings that are near the plane crash site um, alongside another man who seems to be doing the same. Um, everybody seems to be trying to put together the pieces of what, uh, what they've been left with here on the island. Um, 
Immediately, um, we switch to um, a shot of the U.S. Marshal, um, who is saying she's dangerous. We have to, you know, have to find her. And um, Jack is is working on him, telling him not to move um, as he's continuing to doctor his wounds. Um, the marshal goes on to say that he has to bring her back. And uh, Jack says, yeah, you keep saying that. Um, and whenever I ask you who, you pass out again. So um, Jack's assuming that he's talking this way because of his, his injury and his high fever. Um, the marshal then uh, says to him, my cuffs, which gets Jack's attention. And um, when the marshal kind of realizes he has Jack's attention, he directs him to his jacket pocket. And uh, Jack goes to the jacket pocket and finds a folded mugshot of Kate from the Harrison Valley Police Department. And the marshal goes on to say she's dangerous. Um, so uh, this, uh, to begin with, this scene seems to be um, um, setting up this very Kate-centric episode and um, kind of supporting Kate's questionable past and um, kind of stoking our anticipation, I think, of, of what she's done before she came to the island. Yeah, uh, and it was kind of interesting to note the surprise uh, of Jack uh, to me. It, and, and and you could almost see that his, he wanted to change his opinion about her, though he was reluctant to, to, to make a judgment yet. Um, I, I thought Matthew Fox did a really good job of, of, of portraying that kind of confusing moment uh, when he first looks at the picture. Mm-hmm. And moving on to scene two, uh, Boone notes that it's getting dark uh, as the group are traveling back from after hearing the French transmission. <laughs> Sawyer says to pick up the pace. Saeed says that they should make camp here, and Sawyer says he's going to continue. Saeed says it's not a good idea to continue in the jungle in the dark. Sawyer asks if Saeed is afraid the trees will get them, and Saeed returns by saying, no, he's afraid what's in the trees will get them. Uh, Sawyer then says to give him the gun clip back, uh, and he'll be fine, and then Kate cuts him off saying that Saeed is correct, to trust her, that she doesn't want to be, uh, they won't make it to the beach uh, if they continue. Um, we then cut to the group at the nightfall at the campfire, and Saeed is recounting uh, the uh, the plane's course, uh, flight of the flight uh, up to the point of the crash. Um, Kate says that the pilot told her and Jack that they were thousands of miles off course when the turbulence hit. Um, Charlie says that they have satellites and Saeed counters that satellites are point and shoot. They got to know where to shoot in order to be able to find anything. Sawyer says, yeah, that's a great uh, show, but uh, let's talk about the transmission. He recounts the transmission and asks Kate how long it's been running. She says 16 years. Uh, Boone says they need to tell everyone what they found when they get back, which kind of starts a debate with Shannon. Saeed says that, uh, no, they can't tell anyone. It would destroy their hope, uh, which would be a very dangerous thing to lose. And Kate kind of resigns to say, so we lie. My impressions of that scene was that Kate seemed very resigned by the fact that they had to lie. Um, It's kind of surprising given the lies that she's already been telling since they've been on the island, or at least omitting of the truth or not including being all-inclusive about herself. Um, For instance, that she didn't know how to use a gun uh, or not saying anything about the handcuffs or the marshal, um, not telling Jack that she knew who the marshal was. Um, This creates a a further division of the camp, um, and deception is now already part of the group. 
Um, this is kind of the, the very human characteristics that Auntie Jacob uh, predicted would happen with anybody who came to the island when uh, him and Jacob were having their conversation at the beginning of uh, the incident. Yeah, um, I, I think this is... Um this scene, I definitely agree with everything you just said, Matt. I also think that um, um, this this scene is where, I mean, as far as the writing goes, I think um, where this is the scene where Sawyer seems to be asking all the questions that are summing up what's been going on. And, and you know, that's one of my least favorite writing styles when, you know, one of the characters asks the questions that, you know, the, the those who are watching might be having. Um, it seems like a cheap kind of way to write in what's going on. But I will say, since, you know, this is only the third episode of the season, it's it's really important at this point to, to keep everybody um, to keep everybody informed with what's going on, you know, and, and we definitely know that as the season as as this um, as this show progresses there are plenty of, of um of people who get lost along the way. So Sawyer seems to be the one, I think, in this one that's kind of like tying it all together and asking all the questions. Um, I really like Sawyer's character more as it continues to develop through the show. Um, the beginning the beginning Sawyer uh, uh, dialogues or monologues or whenever he's talking, he's... It's 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 not my favorite uh, uh, version of him. You know, he does he does grow and change. You know, through the the show, and um, this is one of those like jerky behaviors that you know that he had, where he's he's calling he's starting to call everyone by their by the names he makes up for them, and he's you know cutting everyone off and being kind of rude and in in true Sawyer form here at the beginning, I think. So um, in the next scene, um, we're on the beach. Um, it's also at night. Um, Jack and Hurley are uh, talking as they're constructing a shelter for the wounded marshal. Um, Hurley's asking if Jack thinks it was a dinosaur in the jungle, and Jack says no. Um, Hurley asks why not, and Jack responds that dinosaurs are extinct. <laughs> and Hurley says, oh. <laughs> So Hurley goes on to uh, to say that um, that the man doesn't look good, the marshal doesn't look good, and it looks like he's dying. Um, Jack says he's not going to die with antibiotics; he'll be fine. Um, Hurley persists, asking questions. You know, what if he doesn't find antibiotics? And then um, Jack concedes that in that scenario, yes, it's true, the man's body will shut down. So um, this is when Hurley sees Kate's mugshot folded up next to uh, him. Um, and um, Jack takes it away, saying it's none of their business. Um, and Hurley says he thinks that uh, that Kate looks pretty hardcore. And then we get the lost letters across the screen. Not the big side bussy, you know, the waving letters. Um, this is definitely setting up our whole Kate-centric episode, I think. Um, other than that, there's just there's some funny moments where Hurley seems to not know that, or seems to, to to not know how to respond to the fact that dinosaurs are extinct. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, what do you think, Matt? Yeah, uh, there, I just there was a couple of memories from this actually from the first time that I saw it. I remember thinking how wrong Jack was at the time when he said it wasn't dinosaur about the monster. I, I really believed that it was at the, at the time. Of course, me and a lot of other people, but. There, there was an answer right there that, no, it wasn't a dinosaur. Just right there in the third episode, all we had to do was just take him at his word and think about it, and that's totally true. Um, it's it's kind of an expositional scene to get us give us the martial status, uh, to reveal the secret about Kate to more than just Jack. Um, 
Hugo's reaction to the mugshot was 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 funny, um, as usual. Uh, Jorge Garcia always thought it adds good comic relief to everything. <laughs> um, back at the camp with Kate and the gang, uh, everyone is sleeping except Boone, who tries to take the clip, the gun clip, off of Saeed. It wakes Saeed up, and he uh, and that of course wakes everyone else up. Uh, Saeed asks what he's doing. Boone says he was going to stand guard. Um, Sawyer gets very perturbed that Boone managed to get the gun off of him. Um, and then Shannon argues that Boone doesn't even know how to use a gun. Um, as they debate on what to do about camp, uh, who might stand guard or, or who might have the gun, Shannon says that Kate should have it, and all agree, and Kate reluctantly takes the gun as the camera focuses in on her, which this just more or less sets up the fa uh, flashback. It's again uh, a nice little irony that the person who has been saying that she doesn't know how to use the gun uh, is the one that uh, they end up giving the gun to. Um, that's kind of kind of strange in my book, but it does set up the flashback nicely, I suppose. Well, you know, I think that I think that the maybe the logic there was that they give the person who doesn't know how to use the gun the gun because they pose the least danger to anyone else if they don't know how to use it. Not that I fully agree with that. In general, I think people who carry guns who don't know how to use them is probably a dangerous thing. But <laughs> but maybe in this situation, they were thinking that 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 it'd be safer if somebody somebody'd be less likely to use a gun if they don't know how. Perhaps I don't know. Yeah, perhaps. Um, so, uh, I'll go on and do the flashback then. Um, this is, uh, the flashback of, of Kate that starts the, the, the series of flashbacks in this episode. Um, Kate has a gun pointed in her face as she's waking, uh, from sleep on the floor of a barn, uh, in a sheep's pen. And a farmer is standing over her holding that gun. Um, looks like a shotgun of some kind. And, uh, Kate stands up as he lowers the gun. And he starts questioning her, asking her how she got there. Um, she says she walked. Farmer continues to question her, saying the nearest town is, is 15 kilometers away. And she says that's why she's so tired. Um, again, we're, we're not sure what of this is true and uh, exactly, but we know what she's saying. Um, she asks her name, and she says, uh, she says that her name is Annie. Um, and he asks if she's hungry. So, uh, so we move quickly to uh, a scene where where she's eating breakfast that he's made for her in, in his kitchen. He's asking as she's hungrily eating uh, why she's trespassing on his land. And she says that she starts kind of relaying this story that she's run out of money, that she's Canadian and just out of college seeing the world. Um, and she always wanted to see Australia, so she hopped a flight, but she didn't actually know anyone there. So uh, in Melbourne, she started walking, and uh, the farmer then goes on to question her again and say, "Melbourne's a hundred kilometers away," and um, you know, and she replies with her cute little Kate smile and says, "I like walking," <laughs> and um, she um, she then says that she also likes farms, which is why she uh, she maybe chose his place, and um, he asks if she knows how to run one. She says, yeah, and he goes on to explain that his wife had died eight months ago and left him with a hell of a mortgage and a lot of chores and offers her a job in exchange for a fair wage and a place to stay. So she agrees, and she goes to shake his hand. Uh, when This is when he tells her he's a lefty, and uh, he kind of thuds his uh, prosthetic right arm down on the table, and she smiles. 
So, uh, again, this flashback is, is setting up this story of Kate and the Marshal, um, and still, you know, leaving us in suspense about her past. Um, you know, it's just a piece of what we're going to get this episode um, in Kate's history. And uh, it also kind of puts in our mind that maybe she's, uh, maybe she's all, maybe even to begin with in the flashback, that she's already on, on the run, um, which we find out later is true. Yeah, uh, Kate is uh, definitely uh, come, oh, uh, again, uh, lying her way through things. Um, it's, there's a couple of interesting notes, though, uh, that she said she was from Canada. Of course, we know that she was from Iowa. Uh, but uh, Evangeline Lilly is actually from Canada, so I don't know if the writers did that. It's just kind of a, a nice thing for her or what. Um, but at any rate, they uh, they did uh, throw that line in there. And then uh, the name that she uses, Annie, uh, is uh, actually her uh, the character Catherine Hat Austin's middle name. Let's move on. Uh, Hugo comes to uh, Jack. Um, saying, dude, they're back. And uh, as the group returns, uh, Saeed gathers everybody and makes an announcement that they failed to get a signal out uh, from the transceiver, but not to give up. They need to gather electronics to try and boost the signal. He says uh, that they need to set up three groups, one for water, one for electronics, one for ratcheting food, and they need a leader for each. As Saeed's given the speech, Kate uh, sees Jack, who is watching her, uh, and uh, she approaches him as uh, Hugo kind of watches from the side, too. She uh, tells Jack that she needs to tell him something, and he nods. Uh, he's expecting her to reveal the truth about herself. Um, instead, she tells him about the fact that they, uh, they received the uh, French transmission and couldn't get a signal off because uh, it was on the same frequency, and, and they heard the transmission saying that the woman had, uh, that had been running for 16 years that they'd figured out and that... Uh, the woman had said that they killed them all. Um, he acknowledges what she tells him, uh, but then he asks her if there's anything else. Um, she kind of doesn't really say anything except turns her attention to the medical tent and says, uh, asks how the marshal is and has he said anything. Um, he doesn't reveal to her what he's learned, uh, and then we go to a break. There's an awful lot of withholding and deception among our characters already. I mean, here you have Kate, uh, not revealing the truth about herself to Jack, and now you have Jack withholding the truth about the fact that she uh, that he knows uh, what her is. Um, I kind of think that this scene kind of foreshadows what the ramifications are of lying. Saeed's lying to the group uh, about the transmission, um, and uh, there's 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 a lot of a lot of elements here between that. Uh, Again, Auntie Jacob and Jacob converse about at the beginning in, in, a, in a more broad and general way, but uh, in the beginning of the incident. Nice. You know, I, I hadn't really, th I mean, I, I had considered individually that, that all three of those groups or individuals were lying, but it, I, I didn't really notice that the, the collection of lying going on already. Um, that's a really good point. I like that. Um, also, uh, in this scene, I thought it was cool um, that when Saeed is giving the bad news, speaking of lying, he's giving the bad news, um, you know, but not the full news to the group. 
you can see the group of people who have gone, you can see as, as Saeed's delivering the news, they're kind of looking around to see what people's reactions are, like I, I guess maybe trying to even check and see if, you know, Saeed's worry that people losing hope would be very dangerous. You can see them kind of, you know, or feeling bad about the lying perhaps to the group. You see them. Um, they also um, really nicely scan the faces directly of each of the main characters when they're doing that. You know, you see Sun and Jin and, you know, um, you're, we're moving through the, the character. They're starting to really bring forward those, those main characters, um, which at this point we've, we've pretty much figured out who the main characters are, but they continue to kind of reinforce them out of the, out of the group of people. Um, which is pretty, still pretty big at this point. Um, otherwise, we're still just trying to find out Kate's story. You know, um, there's a lot of, like you said, it's, it's intriguing. There's a lot of deceit going on right now. Um, Kate seems a lot to me. Um, I remember thinking and watching this for the first time, like the girl next door, um, but she also is really tough, and um, and that makes you kind of question, like if one of them is untrue, um, or if she's just kind of a balanced character like that. Moving on, um, this is, I believe this is scene seven. This is where uh, Jack and Hurley are, um, they're moving um, a, a pair of plane chairs through the sand away from the plane, and um, Hurley is basically asking Jack um, about what they know about Kate, and Hurley asks um, him, what did she say? And um, and Jack doesn't say, and, and Jack says nothing. Um, she she said nothing, and Hurley presses, but you told her you knew, right? And um, Jack goes on to say he's not sure he knows anything. Um, and Hurley says, um, you know, they know of her mugshot and the handcuffs, and the guy that keeps mumbling, she's dangerous, she's dangerous, over and over. <laughs> um, Hurley is funny, and, and again in this one. Um, and Jack goes on to say it's none of his business. Um, and uh, Hurley next runs after Jack, um, who starts to walk away. He's kind of trying to walk away from the conversation, it seems like. And uh, in an effort to keep the conversation going, says, you know, oh, you're probably right, you're probably right. Um, you know, we'll let Johnny Fever take care of her when he wakes up. Um, and uh, Jack uh, goes on to, to tell him that, um, that the Marshall isn't going to get better without stronger antibiotics and asks Hurley about um, any luggage in the overhead compartments in the fuselage. And Hurley hesitates. Uh, the dead bodies freak him out a little bit. And um, Jack says he'll handle it. And Hurley turns to look after the man um, and uh, the marshal. So, um, I mean, for me, this was, this was really a, um, just a, a funny scene of Hurley kind of Throwing out uh, again his sense of humor. I love the Johnny Fever reference, <laughs> and um, and the um, just the overstatement of the fact that Kate seems, at least in the opinion of the marshal, to be a pretty dangerous character. The the next shot is um, inside of the fuselage, and Jack is going through things. Um, he hears something and turns his flashlight up and sees Sawyer in the upper part of the fuselage and asks what he's doing. Um, he responds the same thing you are. And uh, Jack accuses Sawyer of looting at this point. And um, Sawyer goes on to say that he's got some smokes and some Playboys and, um, and asks Jack what he has. And Jack shoots him kind of a dirty look back and says that he, is, look, he has medicine. Um, Sawyer says, uh, that just about sums it up, don't it? <laughs> Which I also thought was very funny um, and very telling. Um, 
Jack then kind of ribs him a little and, and says, you know, and asks him if this is what he does back home is steal from the dead. Um, Sawyer seems pretty unaffected by, by that insult and tells Jack that he needs to wake up to the fact that nobody's coming and he's wasting his time working to save the life of somebody who's a goner anyway, uh, referring to the marshal. Um, he goes on to ask how many to ask uh, uh, Jack how many pills he's going to use uh, on the marshal. Um, Jack responds as many as it takes. Sawyer um, makes his point by asking how many do you got. So um, he's telling Jack that um, he's really missing the, the the big picture here, and that um, that he's continuing to function as though they're in the civilized world. And uh, Jack asks, "Where are you?" And he says, "I'm in the wild." So um, this is again, this is really laying out the differences between Jack and Sawyer. I think um, you know the differences between those people who are working as though a rescue is coming in a civilized manner, and those people who are kind of preparing for a longer stay, who are maybe more the from the realist point of view. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, uh, in reference to the earlier part with with uh, Jack and uh, and 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 Hugo. Uh, that was, you know, the, the typical, the typical kind of Hugo thing. But the, the the key part of this for me was the the Jack and, and Sawyer thing in the fuselage. Um, here we see the, those very uh, core elements of those characters that they played out and and actually came head to head in in season five. Uh, when you think about it, uh, in I think it was uh, Namaste, where Sawyer said seems to me that you've always just been a man to react, and a lot of people have died because of that. Here we have Jack. He's furiously looking for medicines to save one guy. He's reacting to saving this one guy, whereas Sawyer is in the same plane, and he's thinking, which he says is what he does. That's the way he gets through problems is to think his way through them. He's thinking about the future. He's thinking about what people are going to need 10, 12 days down the line, not, not what one guy needs right now. Um, and, and it brings another uh, question to mind about Jack himself. I mean, here we have uh, a doctor who has a Hippocratic Oath, and, of course, he's doing everything he can to help this guy because that's what the Hippocratic Oath is. But it only takes just a few weeks, you know, literally uh, from the time that uh, he, they're, they're at that point to later on in Season 3 uh, when he refuses to help Ben... Uh, with the surgery, where he's totally abandoned that Hippocratic oath, um, and uh, and then again in season five when Young Ben is shot, how he refuses to do anything to help him. Um, so it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting to 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 see the 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 way the island has has changed these characters in a way, and in a way as Sawyer said in in an episode, I believe it's uh, the Long Con or something, that the tiger doesn't change his stripes. Um, there are core elements that it seems that one just can't change, uh, even though we've seen Jack become a little more centered uh, away from reactionary and more towards uh, thinking. And we've seen Sawyer be reactionary as well um, in, in Season 5. So it, it's kind of interesting to see how everybody gravitates from one end towards the center. Moving on, we find uh, Charlie is in, uh, he's, uh, finding a wheelchair, uh, and uh, Claire is trying to move a bag. Charlie offers and throws her bag on the wheelchair uh, and uh, says, whoever had this wheelchair is better, probably better off 
are way better off than we are. Um, there's a cut to son uh, saying that uh, she's carrying a bag and telling Jen that she thinks she has his. He examines it and says, no, it isn't. She says she'll keep looking as she starts to move away. He tells her to come back here, and when she does, he says that she's filthy and she needs to go wash up. As she starts to leave, she, he says that he loves her. She says nothing. Uh, then we cut back to Charlie and Claire, and Charlie asks how the baby uh, is, and she says, okay. Charlie asks her if the husband, if, if her husband was on a flight. She says she isn't married. How modern of her, right? And Charlie says, who needs men? They're bloody useless. Um, Jess about their trip to the mountain, uh, uh, and uh, was it useless? And he just kind of delays responding. Uh, as we cut to Hugo, who's coming out of the medical tent with uh, bottles of water. He stops uh, cold when he runs into Kate. He's very nervous. Um, she introduces herself, says, I'm Kate. He nervously introduces himself. Um, Kate asks for word check, and he tells her he's looking for medicine. Uh, when Kate returns to see where Jack is gone, Hugo uh, sees the gun sticking out of her pants, and she uh, asks if Hugo uh, means fuselage. Uh, he stutters nervously and excuses himself, saying he's got to go get the water. Uh, and then the rain starts to come, and as others are taking shelter uh, or trying to set up ways to collect the water, Kate goes into the medical tent and hovers over the marshal. Uh, the comment that I had about this, and, and we talked about this in the Lostaholics rewatch a couple of weeks ago, uh, is Charlie's comment about the wheelchair. Um, if you only knew how right he was, uh, the the uh, the fact that it was locked in that wheelchair, and and he uh, he is much better off, or seemingly so, uh, than than he was uh, when he boarded the plane. There's also the dynamic of Sun and Jin's relationship. It's getting more pronounced that uh, they're quite at odds. And uh, then, of course, you go again, once again, to the rescue with a little bit of humor, uh, even regarding his fear of Kate. And, of course, it solves a flashback. Yeah, I, I, I think um, I would only add to that that um, I did notice the rhythm of this scene seemed to kind of start moving faster. They're moving back and forth. They're in the same scene in the same place on the beach, but they're moving back and forth between um, a lot of different characters all in the same area. Um, much shorter conversations going on as well. Um, so the flashback that we get at this point um, is uh, a continuation of what we've already seen in uh, the flashback storyline uh, earlier. Um, Kate is back at the farm. Um, she's pulling on the light in a pantry at night. Um, she's slowly moving a panel of wood aside, and she pulls out um, a can with a, a rubber-banded wad of money on the inside. Um, the lights go on, and the farmer um, uh, uh, is there, standing there with her. Says that they give her a hard time if she tried to put that into a savings account. Um, that he would have held on to the money for her, and uh, Kate replies that she's got trust issues. And uh, she turns off the light. Um, she grabs her pack um, as though she's going to say goodbye. Um, he asks, "Were you even going to say goodbye?" She tells him that she wrote him a note. Um, he points out that she's been there for three months, and she always has that same look in her eye, like she's running from her past. Um, that he always knew she'd go, but he hoped it wouldn't be like this. Um, she says she's sorry. Um, he says so is he. And as she starts to leave, the farmer asks, why doesn't she just stay one more night? And they'll take her to the train station in the morning. 
she agrees. Um, and uh, and the flashback of this in this section ends with the farmer saying that he gets it, you know, and that everyone deserves a fresh start. And uh, in the flashback, Kate looks, you know, very, you know, surprised and a little bit worried that he understands that. I think. So uh, this is where um, we where the, the flashback has ended, and we're we're back at the tent where where it began, and um, she's still standing over the marshal, who opens his eyes and begins to strangle her. Jack comes in and he pulls the man off of her and um, lays him back down. He closes his eyes again as though he's passing out, um, and Jack immediately asks Kate, "What did you do?" Which is interesting since he was on top of her strangling her when Jack came in. Um, Kate explains that he jumped on, he jumped at her, and um, and Jack explains to Kate that um, the man's not doing well um, and goes out to get water. So um, this is, you know, again, this is this is more Kate-centric flashback where we're starting to um, understand, um, you know, more obviously that she has trust issues um, and. But she seems to want to trust people, you know, the, even the fact that she decides to stay that last night um, on the farm when she's asked, even though her feeling is to go, um, I think it shows a little bit of, you know, in her that she does she does want to trust, um, but it's just not been in her experience that that works out well. Right. Um, I also think, uh, you know, you... you 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 basically get the theme of the of the show and where the title comes from in in Ray Mullen's words that everyone deserves a fresh start, a blank slate, if you will, or a tabula rasa. Um, that uh, that theme is is presented throughout uh, here and then later on, of course, at the end of the show uh, as well, which is kind of uh, what uh, Kurt Yanko from Black Rock Podcast calls, and Nancy Drew also uh, calls central themes of an episode and. Uh, Obviously, the, the central theme here is getting a fresh start. Um, in terms of the uh, the scene going on, as, as, as it continued on, where uh, after Jack went out after he gets the water, Kate fo- is, 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 is following him after he gets the water, and uh, he leaves the tent. Uh, she's following him. Uh, she asks what can be done if he will suffer, and Jack says it won't be quick, and that uh, he will feel it when Kate asks. Um, she then says, uh, can't you put him out of his misery? Um, this kind of puts Jack over the edge, and he tells her that he saw the mug shot and adds the comment that I am not a murderer. Um, that part is, is, is a great scene uh, with the actors, anyway. It's, uh, the tension between Jack and Kate is, is, is unreal there. Uh, it was one of those things that kind of kept me interested in this show, actually, especially this time around watching, was looking for the technicalities of, of, of the acting and, and how well things were portrayed and uh, just the fact that the secrets are, are, are revealed um, there uh, and, and that everything is now kind of out in the open between the two of them and where do they go from here. I thought it was really well played by Matthew Fox and, and uh, Evangeline Lilly. Nice. Okay, and so we're to another flashback uh, where Ray is driving Kate to the train station with Patsy Cline uh, playing If You've Got Leaving on Your Mind. He asks if, they, if they've heard of Patsy Cline in Canada. She says they've heard of Patsy Cline everywhere. Um, he asks if she's hungry, uh, and she says she'll eat on the train. Uh, Ray keeps looking in the mirror behind him, and Kate calls him on it. 
Um, she sees the SUV with the marshal in it pulling up behind them and asks how long Ray had known. He said he'd seen her picture in the post office a couple of days ago. Uh, she asks why he turned her in, and he says the reward is $23,000, uh, and he needs the money for the mortgage. Um, uh, he says it was a hard decision, Annie, and she just kind of coldly says, my name's not Annie. The SUV pulls up uh, beside her, and the uh, marshal smiles uh, and points his finger uh, like a gun at her. Uh, and then we uh, go back to the present, and Kate is standing in the rain, having just remembered that, and that's when we're at a commercial break. Um, Ray needed the money, the $23,000, one of the numbers, of course, and we've seen a lot of the numbers in this in this episode, which uh, I guess means that they had those numbers in mind from the very beginning, uh, seen it already in, the, in both the pilot and in this episode. Uh, there wasn't really any other thing that I had here, except this is uh, explaining how uh, Kate ended up in the handcuffs, of course, on the way back from Australia. Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that, Matt. Um, the next scene is, um, it starts out uh, uh, centered on Walt, who's um, playing some kind of little game as he's dropped. He's trying to evenly drop a bunch of things at one time. Um, the rain is continuing to pour down, and Michael is securing their shelter. Um, he asks uh, Walt about Locke and what they talked about. Walt says that Locke told him a secret. Uh, Michael asks him what that secret is. Um, he tells, uh, he kind of um, begrudgingly tells Michael that um, he was told that a miracle happened uh, to Mr. Locke. And um, Michael uh, says that a miracle happened to them all and that he doesn't want Walt hanging out with Mr. Locke anymore. Um, Walt goes on to question and ask why and says that Locke is his friend. Um, Michael tells Walt, I'm your friend too. And Walt says, if you were my friend, you'd help me find my dog. And um, Michael starts to say, I'm going to help you find your dog. As soon as it stops raining, I'm going to help you find your dog. And it immediately stops raining. And we get that silence where Walt is looking at Michael, seeing if he's going to deliver on the promise. Um, Michael is, uh, is uh, in the jungle, kind of making fun of himself, um, <laughs> saying, as soon as it stops raining, as soon as it stops raining, um, I guess he's kind of kicking himself in the butt for having put himself in the spot because really he didn't want to go find Vincent. Um, and he hears something in the, uh, in the brush in front of him. And he's calling Vincent's name, but Vincent doesn't come. Um, he hears some, we, we, we hear some animal sounds. We're not quite sure what they are. It sounds, you know, kind of a little bit like um, maybe the boars or something else that we see later, um, but we're not sure. Um, he starts running um, immediately and surprisingly um, comes out of the jungle in um, a covered area where Sun is bathing herself, as her husband had asked her to do, and she is standing there topless, kind of covering herself. Um, Michael, <laughs> kind of in a, fun, in a funny way, and I don't usually think Michael's very funny, but in a funny way he kind of explains that something's chasing him, he doesn't hear it now, but it was behind him, and that he didn't see anything, and he goes on to walk even closer to her and to pick up her clothes and hand them back to her. 
um, which is funny because, you know, she'd need a hand to actually hold them, and she barely moves that hand to catch the clothes that he, he passes to her. And, um, and he insists that he didn't see anything, and he continues walking away. So, um, you know, this is, uh, this is Michael, this is Michael and, and Walt. Um, um, again, Michael's not my favorite character. I don't really have a whole lot to say about this scene. It just seems like, you know, Michael's kind of trying to, to, to be cool with Walt, trying to develop a relationship with him, and um, in the end, it doesn't really play out so well. What do you think, Matt? Well, th there was something else about just prior to Michael going into the jungle, and, and by the way, Michael in the jungle uh, looking for Vincent is my G. Keno moment this week. It's the, uh, it's the uh, me and my big mouth theme is what is what is called in the official soundtrack. Um, <laughs> But it's actually the music where he's uh, running away from the animal. And uh, But prior to that, when Michael and Walt are having this discussion while it's raining, I, I think this is a, another big allude to the, to, to, the, to the mythology a little bit because we, we, we understand now that the island does have healing properties. But the fact that Locke was, came, went from being completely paralyzed to instantly uh, able to walk is something that just doesn't seem even within the island realm uh, uh, without the help of, uh, say, a Jacob or an anti-Jacob. And so that, that's, a, that's a big thing. And, and the fact that we discussed this last week, that, that uh, the, the, the fact that the way Walt reveals the secret to, to Michael, all he says is that Mr. Locke says a miracle happened to him. Now, we can assume that that means that Locke told him that he could walk, or maybe Locke just said a miracle happened to him. Maybe he didn't say anything more to him either. And so that secret is still very, very uh, vague. Uh, and that, that's one of those things where you have to just kind of, as, as we reexamine the, the whole uh, anti-Jacob thing and, and, and him manifesting himself as Locke later on in Season 5, these are the kinds of questions that we're looking at a little bit more scrupulously uh, as we as we go through some of these rewatches, um, the other thing that I had was especially after uh, the episode special, uh, which is a Michael slash Walt flashback, um, which we'll actually be covering this week on the Lost to Holics rewatch uh, this coming Sunday. So everybody should try and catch that. It's on Talkshoe as well. But finding out Walt has um, something different about him, the fact that that. We've we've seen things where he's he's played backgammon games and 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 won and and all kinds of things later on in, in later episodes and and the fact that he looked at the the comic with the polar bear right after special I started going back and looking at everything Walt did and I thought that Walt had manifested the polar bear which turned out not to be the case um, but it, it was just one of those things where you wondered and so here I was wondering. The fact that as soon as Michael says, well, I'm going to find your dog as soon as the rain stops, I was sitting there wondering, well, did Walt make the rain stop somehow psychically? You know, those kind of things were coming to mind with, with me um, at the time, and I'm still kind of wondering that question uh, even today. So moving on to the next scene, uh, uh, we hear the painful shouts of the marshal, and we go to Mr. Locke. Uh, John Locke is seated uh, in the wreckage, and he seems to be whittling something out of uh, with wood or making something out of uh, out of some bamboo or something. Charlie approaches him and asks what it is. Locke says it's a whistle. Uh, Charlie comments that he used tribal flutes in a recording session once, that he's in a band. 
Uh, we then cut to Shannon, who's moving away from the continued screams of the marshal. She comments to Boone that she wishes the marshal would die already. Uh, Boone comments, real humane, Shannon. Um, Saeed then sees Jack uh, and approaches him and asks how he can help. Jack says he's got it. Saeed says people are getting upset. They want to know what's going on. Jack says he's trying to save the marshal's life. And Saeed says rumor has it that you can't. Um, Jack walks away, uh, not saying anything else. We then cut to Kate, who is making a fire uh, as night is falling. And Sawyer approaches her and offers a lighter to her to light the fire, kind of a, to break the ice. He says that he wants to thank her for taking the gun away from him, that he wouldn't want to have it. Uh, everyone uh, sitting here listening to the Marshall scream all night knows what has to be done, and the only person that can do anything about it is the person with the gun. Um, he kind of notes her feigned surprise as he says it and says he knows she's thinking the same thing um, and that there's only one bullet left and it'd be nearly poetic. Um, we then cut to the inside of the tent where Jack is tending to the marshal and the marshal warns Jack not to trust Kate. No matter what, she'll do anything to get away. Um, and Jack asks what she did. The marshal uh, keeps repeating that he wants to talk to her alone uh, and then the marshal then notes by Jack's expression that uh, Kate must have gotten to him too. And that's when we go to a commercial break. This to me, again, was interesting how Locke was fo focusing his attention away from the suffering. Uh, he seems to be totally out of tune uh, with anything except what he needs to do at this point. He's not, um, he's not even, doesn't even make a comment about the marshal screaming or anything. Um, I thought it was funny that Charlie was saying, you know, I made, we use tribal flutes, I'm in a band, you know, with Charlie it's all about him all the time because that's a typical rock star thing, as me and you well know. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, there are serious ethical issues about it as far as the Marshall is concerned. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to wonder how long, how long do you let a person suffer like this and it really, uh, the, way, uh, the way the marshal presents to Jack, that never to trust her, that she's too dangerous and, and everything, it just makes you wonder what it is exactly that Kate did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we're also figuring out, I also had the question in watching this um, for the first time, and, and I don't know that it's ever really been answered even where we are now, um, if, if the marshal had feelings for Kate at one time, you know, he does say um, she got to you too. Um, and, I mean, there are plenty of people that Kate had, had gotten to, you know, before, uh, to put it in, in the marshal's words. Um, you know, it's, it's possible that the marshal's just referring to one of those situations. But he seems to, I, I always wondered what kind of personal vested interest he had in, in catching her. He seems to be, you know, beyond just doing his job, you know, his, his, his demeanor always seems so much like he has a personal stake in it in some way. Do you know anything else about that, Matt? About the Marshall and, and Kate? Yeah, about any, any kind of relationship that they had, you know, beyond what we've seen. Are there, are there any other references? It's it's funny that uh, uh, that uh, you should mention that because in the chat room a, a few of a few of our guests in the chat have been having a conversation about there must be something between the marshal and and Kate that we haven't seen on screen and probably never will because oh. uh, I think the time is, has uh, has kind of uh, 
oh gotten God. away from the writers. Yeah, they don't have time to, to really kind of answer that kind of thing anymore. But their relationship was very uh, strange. Even if you look through the flashbacks, uh, I think you, you can see that the Marshall has a real obsession uh, for Kate. Um, and maybe it was the fact um, that she is so crafty and has, has been able to elude him that makes him very obsessive about her. Uh, and has actually blown her up as being more dangerous uh, than in, than is into her, or than she actually is. Um, because let's face it, when we look back from season two, uh, when we found out what Kate actually did, she thought she was doing the right thing, even though murder is never the right thing. But uh, she really thought she was defending her mother and perhaps herself. We don't know how much Wayne was coming on to her as well. Uh, and so uh, the way uh, it was alluded to in that scene uh, when she blew up the house. But uh, when she, I honestly feel like she felt like she was doing it for the right reasons, um, thinking that it maybe the ends uh, justify the means, is a, which is another theme that we've seen run constantly uh, throughout this whole series. Uh, and, and, and it typically is... is, is orchestrated or, or exemplified by people who we've kind of, kind of come to, to not really like too much in this series. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so moving on, I guess. Um, Kate is standing outside the tent with a gun sticking out of her jeans. Um, she's thinking back again, and um, we get another piece of the flashback. Um, this is a continuation of the scene where she's in the truck with the with um, with the farmer, with Ray, and um, the marshal is speeding up in his SUV next to their truck. Um, they go back and forth on the road um, a couple of times as they're. Um, I assume I, I think they drive on the left side there, so I was really noticing that they were seemed to be driving on the wrong side um, for a moment. But one of them is definitely driving on the wrong side when they're side by side. So um, at this point, you know, it seems. It, it, it almost seems like overkill at this point that they're driving this way. I mean, you know, he's already got her there. So, um, again, the marshal's very passionate about, about catching her. Um, Kate eventually grabs the wheel and turns the truck um, into the marshal's SUV. Um, the vehicles skid around a little bit from side to side, and eventually um, the marshal's um, SUV hits the rear passenger side of the truck, and they tumble end over end off the road. Um, the truck starts to catch fire, and the farmer is um, completely passed out. Um, Kate is still awake. She um, gets out of the, the truck, and she pulls the farmer as well, uh, pulls him away from the flaming wreckage. Um, as she's pulling him, she's pulling him so hard that she actually pulls off his prosthetic arm um, in the process, and, um, but does eventually um, get him to the road. Um, the farmer starts to cough and come to, and you know there's kind of a moment of relief there that he's okay, which is immediately um, kind of changed by um, the marshal's gun being held to her head, and he says, "Hello, Kate." So um, we get the full idea that he, you know, by the way, the tone and everything that he uses in saying "Hello, Kate," that he knows who she is. He's been chasing her for probably a while, um, and that. Um, and that, uh, and that she's kind of found herself in a bad way here. <laughs> okay. Uh, I just wanted to point out that, that despite her issues, uh, which have, many of them have been established about what her 
core character is uh, in this episode, one of them being that she she runs, um, another one being that she feels we kind of get the impression that the, the ends justify the means. It, the, the the other thing is uh, that she doesn't really ever wish harm on the on the innocent uh, Ray. He he wasn't he wasn't out to get her. He needed the money, uh, and she realizes that. And so when the, she does pull him free of the wreckage, um, and again uh, this this kind of motivation as far as is not wanting any of the innocent uh, to be in harm's way, I think is 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 her key motivation for wanting to stop Jack in the incident for, from, from uh, detonating the bomb. She's not nearly so much worried, although in, in, in some ways I'm sure she is worried about erasing the last three years of her life and a possible reset, but I think she's also worried about the, the issue of, of the innocent human lives that will be lost if Jack succeeds in, in detonating this bomb. Um, so I, I, I think uh, you know, they've, they've managed to apply some core elements that they established in this episode throughout her, her whole character arc. And uh, now we're going to cut back uh, to Kate in the tent with the marshal. Um, he asks her what the favor was that she wanted right before the plane crashed. Um, and uh, so then we cut to a flashback of them on the plane where Kate asks the marshal for a favor, and uh, then the plane goes into a dive. It's hitting the case, uh, the, or the case is hitting the marshal on the head and the plane's tail breaks off. It, it's a repeat of the of the uh, flashback that we saw in the prior episode, basically. Uh, then we cut back to the medical tent, um, and she tells Marshall that she wanted him to make sure uh, that Ray Mullen got his $23,000. Um, he laughs and says, the guy who rented you out, and she said he had a big mortgage. He says she's one of a kind, and, and she would have gotten away if she hadn't saved Ray. She says in case he hadn't noticed, she did get away. Um, he then asks her he's, if he's going to die. Um, she says yes, and then he asks her if she's going to do it. Um, we cut to Jack, who's standing outside the tent waiting. Hugo approaches Jack and asks, where's the fugitive? And Jack says, in the tent with the marshal. Hugo asks, alone? And Jack says, well, she can, what can she do? She's 120 pounds soaking wet. Hugo says, she's got a gun. Uh, Jack goes running for the tent, but then he stops when he sees Kate emerge from the other side. Um, he calls out to her, and when she she turns, there is suddenly a gunshot. Uh, Kate then continues to walk away, and Sawyer comes out of the tent with the gun. Um, Jack asks Sawyer what he did, and Sawyer says what Jack couldn't do. He says the marshal asked him to do it. He says he couldn't, he didn't like it any more than Jack, but something had to be done. Uh, before Jack can respond, we then hear the marshal coughing and gasping for air. Uh, much to everyone's surprise, Jack and Sawyer's uh, included. Um, Jack goes into the tent with Sawyer following. Jack asks Sawyer uh, if he was shooting him, that he shot him in the chest. Um, Sawyer says he was aiming for the heart. Jack says that he missed, and he perforated the marshal's lung, and it will take hours to bleed out. Sawyer says that he only had one bullet. Jack yells for Sawyer to get out. Um, Sawyer leaves uh, and uh, starts to light a cigarette when he's outside, as we hear the marshal continuing to suffer, he, Sawyer is very frustrated. He throws a cigarette out or away. Uh, and then we hear the marshal struggle and then suddenly nothing. Um, Jack emerges from the tent. He's very sad, frustrated, and disgusted by what he's had to do. Um, and then he walks away from the tent. Uh, that takes us to a commercial break. 
And uh, it's funny how the, the line gets juxtaposed, uh, not spoken but, but implied, uh, from Jack back to Sawyer. Uh, when Sawyer said, I did what you couldn't do, uh, it now basically becomes Jack's line. And like I said, though unspoken, um, see that Kate truly did care for Ray also, uh, just through that conversation with the marshal. And um, this is the kind of irony of, of, of Sawyer's leadership role backfiring on him, uh, which is repeated again in season five as well. Yeah, um, you know, I in such a serious scene, it was really great, again, to hear from Hugo where, you know, as soon as they hear the marshals start to gasp after, after um, Sawyer shot him in the chest um, unsuccessfully, um, you know, Hugo's response is, oh, no, no way. <laughs> it's like the most, uh, um, I don't know, it's something you'd say about something more nonchalant than, than someone's um, attempted murder, you know, gone awry. Um, so, I, again, I think, I think he's, he, he always adds like a, a nice, a nice touch of humor when when the situation gets very serious, and and, and that was certainly a, a really serious situation. I agree. There's there's a lot of um, a lot of um, back and forth, like um, uh, between uh, Sawyer and Jack and their roles and what they're trying to do. Um, you know, this was one of the moments where you know it was flip flopped, and Sawyer was the one who just reacted. It seems like and. And Jack really thought about it and changed his mind about, you know, how he had felt before and trying to save him and just helped put him out of his misery. Um, you know, I think that being on the island is causing them already to have to reevaluate their their positions about things. Um, so we move on to uh, basically what is the final scene. Um, or close to it. Um, John is sitting on the beach. Um, the sun is coming up on a new day after all of the things that have happened the night before. Um, and he's blowing on a whistle. So this is the whistle he was making with Charlie. Um, and it is a dog whistle. He hears something in the brush and eventually um, outruns Vincent. And um, Locke makes his way through the people who are still sleeping that morning to Michael and tells him that um, he found Walt's dog, that he thinks uh, Michael should be the one to, to give the dog back to him, and, um, and Michael says thanks, um, and, uh, and then Locke leaves. Um, Jack is also sitting at the water at the same time as the, the, sun, the sunlight is coming up over the island, and um, Kate uh, sits down next to him. She says uh, that she wants to tell him what she did, and Jack uh, responds by saying that he doesn't want to know, um, that it doesn't matter who they were or what happened before the crash, that three days ago they all died and they should all be able to start over. And Kate nods and agrees. Um, so uh, again, like this, I mean, right, right here is where it's really coming down to um, to um, the, the 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 name of the episode and, and everyone getting an opportunity to start over. Um, you know, maybe even Jack wants to start over from what had uh, what he had ultimately had to do the night before in killing someone. You know, they're talking about this at daybreak, you know, and then um, we move into that last scene, that last happy Joe Purdy music scene where everybody's doing something nice for each other. Um, do you have anything to say about that, Matt, or do you want to talk about that last nice scene? Uh, 
well, the musical montage, let's see, it was Hugo listening to a CD player with the headphones and then Jen approaching uh, the sweeping sun and then gently strokes her hair. Uh, Boone bringing Shannon her sunglasses. Um, uh, Walt running to the beach uh, to Michael, who has Vincent in tow, and they all reunite. Um, this is the key uh, at the end here. The shot of Locke watching everybody. Um, doesn't even really seem like he's totally there. And we get that kind of very creepy feeling with the creepy G Kino music uh, as uh, as the camera a circle uh, from behind around to Locke's front. That was one of the the, the most um, spine-tingling shots I think I've ever seen, and especially the expression on Terry O'Quinn's face, or on Locke's face, uh, perfectly portrayed by Terry O'Quinn, we can see that there's something just not quite right about Locke. Um, that that whole thing just gave me the creeps totally. Um, another thing that I thought was funny was while Charlie was um, uh, uh, doing uh, writing, rewriting uh, the bandages on his fingers, he uh, changed what was fate originally uh, to late. Um, and in a way, it's almost kind of like Charlie uh, foreshadowing his own death. Um, you know, it was his fate to be the late Charlie Pace. Um, and uh, the, 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 of course, like that, the, the basic premise of the of the whole episode, and hence the title, was in Jack's speech to Kate that everybody gets a, a, a clean slate on the island. So, any other thoughts about this, the the uh, scenes in general? Uh, no, no, I'm in agreement. That last scene, that's, that's pretty, it was a pretty spine-tingling ending to have all that, that you know, real light, happy uh, music. I I think the song was even called Wash Away, if I remember right. I could be wrong, but I think that was what it was called. And, you know, and then to end with that shot of Locke where he just, you know, seems so unaffected by all the joy. <laughs> it's kind of, uh, I agree, spine-tingling. Besides, Faraday's got some interesting theories on what we can and can't do here. Theory discussion. My big thing this week, uh, as we discussed last week, actually, is the reveal of the miracle that happened to Mr. Locke, as related by Walt uh, this week. Uh, we know the fact that he was in a wheelchair, um, but is that the only miracle? Uh, that's, that's the thing that, uh, especially after seeing that really creepy circle uh, around, around him at the end of, of this episode, and the fact that Walt is very vague um, is, I'm wondering if Walt is, is, is being vague specifically. Um, is it to protect uh, the secret of the wheelchair? Um, is, it, uh, is, it something, is it something, as you alluded to, maybe perhaps more was revealed to Walt um, than we were allowed to know at the time uh, when you made that comment last week about uh, the conversation between Walt and Locke at the bike game and game. What do you think? Um, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, I think even though this was a Kate-centric episode, I mean, the, the, the questions and the, the, the theories you can start kind of postulating at this point are definitely mostly surrounding Locke and Walt. Um, I mean, the only other possible, the, on, the only other thing I would maybe contribute as far as the theory is concerned is, is, is you know, what I mentioned earlier about the possibility there, there was uh, some relationship between the Marshall and, and Kate, perhaps. Otherwise, um, definitely, um, 
you know, we don't know we don't know what was revealed to Walt. We don't know how much Walt revealed to Michael um, um, that Locke had told him. And I mean, again, we get that 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 creepy ending situation, you know. And 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 I, I think. I think I think you're right. I'm 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 with your your theories this week. I don't have anything else to add to that. You know, something else that comes to mind for me is is mm-hmm. uh, let's just since this is a Kate centric episode, let's kind of look at the role that she's played over the whole arc of 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 the island. And and the only thing that I can find um, in 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 her being centrally important uh, in terms of the history of the island itself has occurred in this last season, um, the two principal things being saving Ben, for one thing, taking Ben to the others. Even though it was Juliet's idea, uh, Kate was the one who, who uh, executed it, her and Sawyer. Um, that, of course, is key uh, to the future of the other leadership. And then um, the other thing that I ask myself now is, is they did in the season finale, which I didn't extraordinarily like, but maybe it is more important than we think, and that is this whole love triangle or quadrangle or whatever it was by the end of season five. Uh, is, this, is this a key part? Uh, is, when Jack said he had her and, and or he, he had it and he lost her uh, to Sawyer about why he was, why he was doing the, uh, the bomb thing, uh, it, is, is the love triangle a key part to Jack's whole attempt uh, to the reset? Wow, yeah, good question. Yeah. Don't have an answer yet. I, I, I think I think maybe that um I, I I think it was a key I think it was a key part. I don't know that it was the only part. I think uh Jack's faith uh in John Locke uh uh his his new faith in John Locke and in the island himself itself uh was part of it uh as well. Uh, because things as we commented when we when we reviewed the incident, um, how flip flop that scene was. Sawyer was in, at some points arguing Jack's side of the argument, while Jack was arguing sometimes Sawyer's part of the argument, and it didn't seem uh, it didn't seem anything other than kind of ambiguous to me anyway. How about to yourself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, there was there was lots of flip flopping there at the end. Um, it would it would make sense, um, you know that. They were they were possibly like flip flopping things so that you know whatever's coming back around is is, is going to make more sense. Um, I agree. It didn't really you know I, I didn't really follow the logic behind a lot of their 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 changes and choices right at the end. Um, but you know there there were a lot of little things right at the end. You know Kate changing her mind right at the end and and Juliet changing her mind right at the end. You know may, maybe maybe there is really something to that. The, those four uh, and their relationships to one another, um, you know, that we'll learn more about as, uh, you know, as this last season comes around. Um, it's definitely never, you know, in, in the entire role of the, in, in, in every season, they've never dropped the ball on Jack, Kate, and once Juliet was introduced, Juliet and Sawyer, like it's always been, you know, some, even even before Juliet was there, it was a triangle of Sawyer and 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 Kate and Jack, you know. And when and when Juliet was there, you know, it just changed the dynamic more. But once that dynamic began, my point is, it never really has stopped. So hopefully, there is some point to it like that. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess then it is time for the Santi section. 
The Santi section, a section hosted by Leslie. So the floor is yours. So uh, this week in the Santi section, um, I'm not sure if anyone saw this this or not, and um, this aptly named the Santi section this week as my husband and I both came upon this at the same time. Um, on uh, on the Huffington Post today, there was, um, which is a, a great news site if um, if you've not ever been there, HuffingtonPost.com. Um, there is a Bolivian news channel called PAT that um, was recently showing some um, footage which they related to the recent Air France crash, and um, which was just over a month ago now. And um, I'll put that link up too in our chat here in just a second. Um, but apparently they, they, they were showing some video footage that they said they retrieved from a recovered Casio camera or something on board. And uh, they used a shot, uh, w- one shot that we saw again in this episode, where it's, it's showing the video footage, and somebody actually used some lost video footage to say that it was this was the last, these were last moments filmed on the Air France flight that crashed. And in Bolivia, they put it on TV without even checking it out first. And so if you if you hit play and watch that, there's a video right there. Um, it's it's the scene where Kate and the and the um, and the marshal are sitting together with their air masks on in the back. The, the the end of the plane is just kind of blown off. Um, it's so clearly that scene. It's it's hilarious. So um, I would recommend everybody check that out. I thought that was really um, uh, pretty uh, funny. That I I mean even in doing even watching this again, you know, a few days ago or last week or whatever. That scene was kind of stuck in my head because we've seen it twice now, the, that shot of them on the plane. And it's the exact one that someone used um, um, a couple of days ago or even maybe it was yesterday to um, to explain the Air France flight. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to relay that information. thought somebody might get a kick out of that. Yeah, that's uh, that's real. That's, that's interesting. Uh, uh, yeah, when you see the shot, you, you'll so easily recognize it. Wow. Okay. We'll uh, move on to the G Kino moment. The G Kino moment, an analysis of the music of Lost. In this week's G Kino moment, we're going to explore a theme called "Me and My Big Mouth" by Michael G Aquino. This is when Michael is in the jungle looking for. Vincent, Walt's dog, right after he had promised Walt that he was going to find the dog while it was raining. It has a lot of suspenseful elements in it, including the percussion, which is some of it, I'm sure, was parts of the actual fuselage that was taken apart for the set as G. Kino started using those as percussion for some of the score, especially in the first season. The theme first starts out, though, with a droning kind of sound that swells and contracts Uh, which creates a great sense of mystery as well, a sense of eeriness as Michael's walking through the jungle. Uh, It's before he hears the sound of the animal. And as the tension builds and then he realizes that the animal is coming for him, then the drive happens from the percussion and from a string line which moves up chromatically. It's almost kind of like a tension and dissonance of the psycho theme, except that he actually takes each of those 
components of that and then goes up chromatically step by step, generating even more tension until Michael finally emerges from the jungle to find Sun. Okay, so now I will play the theme for you as it is presented on the soundtrack without the dialogue so that you can hear all of those components. There's the droning. And now kind of a percussive beat and we'll start to hear one of the themes of the island, actually the theme used at the end of the show. And now more percussion and the strings. And the gong there at the end in order to indicate that he's free and clear. It kind of releases the tension even though he's now in another tense situation with Sun being topless right in front of him. So it works really well. Uh, it's a, just a short piece, only about a minute long, and it doesn't really have a true theme to it. It does have the element of the ending title theme in it as well as that was used uh, in the very first uh, part where Jack was running towards the crash. The percussive elements really drive home the tension and the strings rising and rising totally makes everything uh, spookier and spookier. You can almost feel the animal coming down on top of you that way. So now I'll play you the scene taken from the DVD with the dialogue also. Yeah. As soon as it stops raining. Good. Nice. I'm going to find your dog. Yeah, I'm just gonna go walking through the haunted damn jungle, looking for you. Vincent? Vincent? That you, buddy? And there you have it. That's a great way to build attention there. You can almost see Michael running through the jungle as it's happening. The sound effects help a great deal too, but I thought Giacchino worked around that whole scene very well in, in terms of how to build it and how to make things more and more and more tense right up to the point where Michael emerges uh, from the jungle to the clearing near the beach where Sun is bathing. And that's the Giacchino moment for this week. You should thank me. It was a stupid idea. Well, what does that say about you agreeing with me? I just hope you figure out something better before we get there. Well, I'm open to suggestions. Listener feedback. Uh, this week, Leslie, we got uh, an, another email from Jim. 
who sent us one last week regarding his theory about Smokey and uh, Auntie Jacob. All right. Yeah. Um, here's what Jim has to say this week. He says, just wanted to say thanks for reading my email on your podcast. Uh, your podcast this week seems less noisy than the last one. Well, that's good. Uh, we hopefully have resolved those issues. Uh, he says, I have more theories that I'd like to share with you. As ABC has now confirmed the Fortoed statue is Towerette, we now have some possible answers as to the fertility problems on the island. Um, according to Lostpedia Wiki, uh, Towerette is an Egyptian deity of protection in pregnancy and childbirth. In the Other Woman episode, Juliet stated that her theory stated her theory that she believes the problem occurs in the second trimester of pregnancy when the woman's immune system is triggered and seems to turn on it. But it only happens to women who have conceived on the island. This is, of course, the answer to why both Danielle and Claire were able to give birth to Alex and Aaron, respectively. Neither of them conceived on the island and were into their third trimester immune system already established by the time they reached the island. So why does the fertility problem happen? Ever since the destruction or demolition of ta the Towerette statue, there is no protection of the pregnancy. I will, I will theorize that Towerette statue protected the immune system of the mother from the ravages of the high electromagnetic concentration of the island. So now let's examine the birth of Ethan, presumably conceived on the island by Amy and Horace. Why, since the Towerette statue was obviously at least partially demolished by 1977, was Amy able to have Ethan when, the, when other mothers had never even made it to their third trimester, according to Juliet in the episode DOC? The answer to me is the onk charm that Amy has carried with her ever since her first husband, Paul's death. Towerette holds onks in each hand, as, as many other Egyptian do deities are depicted as having onks as well. I believe this offered protection to Amy and her baby, Ethan. Remember also, however, that Ethan's birth was not without complication. If it were not for having a fertility specialist, Juliet, at the Dharma barracks, Amy and Ethan might both have died during childbirth. Now let's examine Sun and her pregnancy. Conceived on the island, but she managed to leave the island right before or right at the beginning of her second trimester. This offers an explanation as to why she didn't die. Remember also that her baby was distressed right before she gave birth to him in Korea. So the lack of the Tower of Statue has affected all births in one way or another. This is why even, Dharma time, even in Dharma times, women are taken off the island to give birth according to the internist in the floor. Yeah, that's a good theory, Jim. Uh, I, I think it's been examined in that way by a lot of folks, and maybe not to that extent, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm on board with it. How about you, Leslie? Yeah, I think that's a great theory. Um, I think it's totally backed up, and, I mean, you're using it in, like, four, three or four or five different scenarios there that all seem to, to make sense um, chronologically and everything. Um, I was wondering, you know, something I forgot to mention earlier, speaking of symbols um, and pregnancy, um, what is that symbol that Claire is wearing around her neck right now as she's hugely pregnant on the island? Do you, have you noticed that, the, the red 
uh, necklace that she's wearing. It's, it's. I mean, it, it looks more like maybe it's a Japanese symbol of some kind, but I was just wondering about that earlier today. Uh, I believe we talked about that Sunday in the uh, Lost of Holics rewatch because oh, we were watching you? Raised okay. by Another. Okay. And 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 uh, Nancy Drew's in the chat with us, and I cannot remember exactly. Was it was a Chinese symbol? Is that right, Nancy Drew? Nancy Drew in the chat says that the uh, symbol that Claire has is a Chinese symbol for love. Um, for but, love. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. But the uh, but the amulet was backwards from the symbol. Um, oh. and, yeah, kind of interesting. Um, and thank you very much, Nancy Drew, and be sure to, to uh, check out Nancy Drew's blogs and uh, all of her staff's blogs at lostaholics.com. Uh, there's a lot of really, really good reading there. Uh, and, of course, Nancy's part of the Black Rock podcast hosted by Kurt and uh, Yanko. It's one of the outstanding podcasts, and, uh, and Nancy's doing a heck of a job hosting these a Lostaholic rewatches too. She's got a gang of guys in there like uh, me and and Heath that are always talking over each other, and she directs things very well. It's a it's great conversation, very stimulating. All of the notes are always great, and uh, they always find things. Uh, that panel always finds things that I would have totally missed if it had not been for them. So let's give a shout out to uh, uh, Nancy Drew. Yeah, thanks, Nancy. Very good, and uh, I guess from there. Unless you have anything else to add? Yeah. All right, let's go on to closing thoughts. Closing her up. Closing thoughts. Um, so my impressions of, 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 of the episode overall um, and, and looking at it as uh, Mr. Yanko likes to say through season five eyes, season five eyes, I really... Uh, didn't find a whole lot in this episode other than the the thing with Walt and and uh, and the thing with Locke that that struck me uh, as as being new. Um, there were lots of little things in there still, um, you know, and it wasn't as unenjoyable to rewatch as I thought it was going to be. It was not the most enjoyable watching experience that I've had so far in all of these rewatches, but it it was. Uh, it was overall a, a good episode. It gave us a good base of the core of Kate, you know, uh, which we now, as we as we look at it through season five eyes, can can have seen it uh, demonstrated over and over again about the fact that she runs, about the fact that that uh, she she feels like her heart's in the right place, uh, and perhaps that the ends justify the means sometimes. That she does care about the innocent. Um, uh, and, and she doesn't want people who aren't supposed to be hurt to get hurt. And uh, I think those are all, all central character issues for Kate that were pretty well, pretty well laid out right in the very first episode. And maybe uh, yeah, the, as, as, uh, as the writers uh, went early in this season, since it was Lindelof who wrote it, these may have been core rules that, that the rest of the writers for Kate episodes had, had to follow. Um, hence the repeat of the same story seemingly over and over in a lot of Kate's uh, flashbacks. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I think they've been pretty good at keeping a consistent um, image of Kate, you know, and, and, you know, when it changes, it's basically added to, you know, like there's there's something new added on where we, we, we see that, you know, even though she tends to run, you know, there are moments where she'll put someone else before her, 
you know, if she thinks that, you know, that, like you mentioned, like they may be innocent or um, or shouldn't be affected by whatever's going on. Um, I think it's, you know, in, 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 the, in the chronology of, you know, of, of the, the episodes where, you know, we're looking at episode number three, you know, for the first time, let's say, you know, it's, it's nice to, to, to get, um, you know, it is somewhat of a complex view of a character right from the beginning, you know, like they're not saying she's bad, they're not saying she's good, and, and that's, that's an overall theme of, you know, of the island, you know, it's, they're not trying to, the, the characters are very dynamic, they're not flat characters where these are the good characters and these are the bad characters, you know, they're much more human than that, they're, um, you know, and, and that, of course, you know, connects us and endears us to them, to them more. So, in that sense, I think that this was a good episode. Otherwise, it, it wasn't, again, not my favorite, um, um, but, uh, but thematically, I appreciated it and I thought it was well written, so... Um, that, in addition to the all the the, the Kate information that we got, I I, uh, I enjoyed rewatching it. I, I did watch it a couple of times, so it um, it was it was not a bad episode. Yeah, right on. And and something that you just brought up there uh, again about the dynamic of Kate's character and and how it is it is uh, a, a, a you can look at it either from a light or a dark perspective. But again, not a black and white perspective, which again, just in the very, you know, in, in just the prior episode, the very beginning of the series, uh, we can again, Locke's whole statement about a game, one side dark and one side light, this is not about good and bad. Uh, it's, it's, it's about two, two separate kinds of things. I thought your yin-yang yin uh, principle applied in your Sati section last week was was dead on of, of, about the fact that uh, everything in in this uh, is in this series is muddied slightly, uh, and this 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 episode being no different in terms of that overall. Thing. Okay. Live from California and Connecticut. Lost revisited now's Heath and Miss Windy. <laughs> but it was yeah, a lot of fun. <laughs> Keys to Lost, Matt and Leslie. Very well written and well acted. Still is probably one of my most favorite episodes. All time top ten favorite Lost episodes. Lost Revisited Now and Keys to Lost podcasts unite with the film list to create the favorite top ten Lost episodes of all time. It was definitely leaving you with that feeling of, oh, right at the end. New sheriff in town, boys. Y'all best get used to it. Coming in the last half of July. Talk All right. Uh, we would like to thank everybody who came into the chat tonight. Uh, we're going to close it up here pretty quickly. Uh, but we would like to thank Summertime, Boss Geek 108. Of course, Miss Nancy Drew uh, and Razzle Dazzle, who was in earlier. Thank you. Uh, thanks for joining us, and we will be doing another episode uh, soon. I assume we'll just go ahead and continue on through uh, season one and uh, do them episode by episode. The next episode would then be Walkabout, which is a great episode. Um, it's one of my all-time favorite episodes, actually. And Me too. Yeah, I just absolutely, I absolutely love uh, Locke. 
And speaking of all-time favorite episodes, we should mention that uh, you and I and Heath and Miss Wendy from Lost Revisited Now, uh, Heath also does a, uh, a podcast called The Film List, where he does a top ten of various things like top ten directors, top ten films, and he has guests on his show. Well, all, all four of us are going to put together a, an episode of our top ten favorite lost episodes of all time, at least up to this point. I'm betting that that will change somewhat after next year. And um, But uh, for now, uh, to give us something to do during the hiatus, we're going to pour through our our first five seasons and pick our ten favorite episodes apiece and discuss them on a show. Not sure yet which feed it's going to be on. It may be on the film list feed or it may be on our feed or on both. Um, but uh, we will let you know. It will be coming up in late July. So far the, the date that has been bantered about is July 21st. Um, there's also a possibility that it might be one day the next week as well. So um, we'll see what happens there. Leslie, where are you playing this week? This Friday night, you can catch me at Squires and Lafayette Square um, in St. Louis on Saturday night at 8 p.m. It's a free show, and uh, Saturday night, I am at Hotel Collinsville in Collinsville, Illinois. All right, and uh, you can catch me this Friday night at the Jefferson Barracks for the Blues on the Mississippi Concert Series with Sue Our Blues Band, and then in Baldwin, Missouri for Baldwin Days with the Sue Our Blues Band the next night, Saturday. Um, the start time at Jefferson Barracks is 8 p.m. The start time in Baldwin Days is 7 p.m. Uh, let's give a shout-out to all of our favorite podcasts as well. Love Jacob's Cabin, Donald is Lost, Lostaholics Rewatch, Rocks. I, I'm so pleased to be uh, that they let me actually on the air and I even say a few words every once in a while. And, um, of course, I love the Black Rock podcast. They typically don't do podcasts during the hiatus. Um, and, uh, of course, there's Jed and Kara's uh, Losties, their video cast, which you can find on the Lost Podcasting Network, which is logcasts.blogspot.com. And if you want to visit our blog, we're at keys to lost, K-E-Y-S-T-O-L-O-S-T dot blogspot.com as well. Don't forget lostaholics.com, where you'll find lots of great information about Lost, including so many details about so many things that it'll just drive you insane to try and go through all of it, but it's so, so much fun and so informative. It's, it's great. Um, and with that, I guess we will say good night. Good night. Good night. If you'd like to leave a comment for Matt or Leslie by phone, you can call the Keys to Lost hotline at area code 314-754-9662. Or you can simply leave an email comment at keystolost at gmail.com. That's K-E-Y-S t-o-l-o-s-t at gmail.com also be sure to visit their websites their blog is at keystolost.blogspot.com or their website at keystolost.bravehost.com finally remember that you can participate in the live call-in talk show podcasts by going to talkshow.com and typing in keystolost.com in the search engine to find out when the next scheduled community call will be. Thanks for listening to the Keys to Lost podcast.